right, welcome to Making Movies is Hard. I'm Timothy Plain. I'm Art Purcell. And I don't know what our intro is right now because we've changed it so many times. <laughs> so I'm just going to jump right into the show. A few weeks ago, we had Lucas Kitchen on to talk about his experience releasing his film through Distriber. And it was kind of disheartening to hear what the numbers are on those online platforms. Yeah. Amazon Prime, Netflix. <laughs> he didn't get on those, but we kind of figure out what those numbers were. And just it sounds like the best margin for making money is uh, renting or selling directly to people. Um, otherwise, you're getting like 15 cents for every hour viewed on Amazon Prime. Or I think on Hulu, we ended up figuring out it was yeah, like 8 cents. Yeah, 8 cents per, per download or view or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like with us trying to get our movies made for $100,000, which seems totally reasonable, um, we, I, th- I always kind of thought, oh, doing a movie for $100,000, let's say $50,000 or $20,000, it should be pretty easy to get your money back. But it sounds like it's a lot harder than it is. And I was poking around online the, the other day, and I don't remember how I ran into this article, but I didn't see this the first time I was looking for articles about self-distribution. And I found one from Griffin Hammond, and he was writing about his success which is awesome. Somebody had a success. <laughs> and it was actually, <laughs> so I reached out to Griffin and I said, will you please come on the show and tell us about your story so we can share that with everyone. And uh, we have Griffin on with us today. Welcome, Griffin. Hey guys, thank you for having me. And did I say your name right? Yes. Griffin Hammond. Griffin Hammond. All right, cool. So you did uh, a documentary called Sriracha. Yeah, back in 2013. It's a it's actually a short documentary. It's only 33 minutes about the hot sauce. Wow. And I've seen it. I saw it on like Amazon Prime, I think. Yep, that's one of the platforms. Your movie actually made my wife a fan. She did not like <laughs> Sriracha. She kind of hated Sriracha before that movie. And then we watched it and she's like, oh, wow. Like, I didn't realize that it was, first of all, like, a California product and then also that it was like just like they have this really cool story behind it so she became a fan after that started trying it and now she loves it well yeah it's funny I hear a lot of people watch it they've never tried it and then they'll watch the film and they have to go out immediately like people right after they watch the movie have to go to the store and buy it and I never thought of it as like a commercial for the thing I just I like the sauce and wanted to understand that story myself and then share that with people well that's a great story how much of the story did you know before you went out and shot it um, I mean, I did a lot of research beforehand. I, when I decided to make the film, I didn't know very much. I just thought, this is a topic I enjoy. I'd like to learn more about it. I could probably make a film about how crazy the fans are, you know, the T-shirts. And, you know, there's probably a wedding. There's probably a couple getting married with, like, a sriracha wedding cake or something. That's what I imagine the film would be. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like the weird things people do with sriracha. Yeah. Like strange fans. And as it ended up, there's no sriracha wedding cake in my film. It turns out... David Tran, the guy who makes it, is a really interesting character. And I I started to learn that as I did research about him. I read the very few number of articles that had been written about him before 2013. But no one had done a video story. In fact, I heard he had turned down ABC News, like 2020 wanted to do it, and he didn't let them in. So I was the first camera to get in and tell his story. How did you get in there? Well, I I decided not to take no for an answer. Just early on, I knew, like, this... This is going to be hard to make a film, but uh, there's going to be obstacles, and I'll just keep persevering. And I didn't expect that David Tran would be the first person to say no to me. He just said, I pitched him on the idea, and he said, eh, that's okay, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm going to make a film about 
you no matter what. Like, I, I'm going to make this film about Sriracha, and I think that, I, you know, I'd love to tell your story. And I also, on my second round of emailing him, kind of went back and said, I really respect your story. I really am a big fan of the sauce, and I hope you know that I'm not doing this to make money. I mean, that really wasn't my plan ever to make any money from this. I just thought this is a film that needs to exist. It's a film that I want to make. And I will be very proud to have that film at the end of this. And Mm -hmm. when I told him that and I told him that I'm just a one man band, it'll be so unobtrusive. He didn't immediately say yes, but at least started a dialogue and he eventually let me come in. And then once he met me, he was cool with me and he would let me have a golf cart, drive all over his factory and do whatever (laughs) I wanted. Oh, Oh, that's cool. He seems like such a nice guy. He is very nice. Well, so you know about us we are we have not made a feature film yet i know your film is not a feature right. but to to me it seems like it might as well be it's like a feature length <laughs> short film <laughs> <laughs> like you made a short long enough that you're able to sell so in my mind you've done it you made a feature film it's a, it's a documentary we want to make narratives yeah. but we are we are looking towards that um for you did you think you were going to be making a feature do you think it was going to be a short and like how long had you been thinking about this idea? This is like a bunch a list of questions and you know, it's more just to prompt you to tell a story about like, how did you get to the point where you were, where you decided to shoot this movie? Like, what was your background? Was this the first movie you ever did? Did you think it was going to cost as much as it did? Or did it surprise you how much it did end up costing all that stuff? Yeah. (laughs) So my career, I've been in video forever and I'd been doing lots of freelance video and corporate video And I just realized for the thousands of things I'd made on video, I'd never made anything that I was comfortable calling a film, nothing that would play on a big screen, nothing that would play for an audience. And I'd been attending a lot of film festivals in the winter of 2012, 2013. And eventually I I was going to them thinking like, I should be at these kind of places with my work. I think I've finally risen to the level where I want to showcase my work. And so I came back from South by Southwest in March just determined to make something. And I knew that short documentaries were the category I liked watching the most. So I thought I should probably make that. And it was literally in the drive home from the airport that I was just thinking about things I love because I'd heard like, you should make a film about something you love, especially if you're going to spend eight months like I did working on it. It better be something you're really excited about. Mm -hmm. So I listed the few things in my head that I thought I was a big fan of. And Sriracha was like number two. And I was like, that actually could be a pretty interesting story because I can think of all the people that love this stuff, but I bet if you ask them anything about it, they don't know what country it came from. They don't know anything. And I just thought that was an interesting gap. And that's probably a good place to go for a documentary is something that has an audience. People are passionate about it, but they there's a, a lot of information you can teach them. But really, it was just I wanted to learn these things myself. Yeah. So I set out to make it, and I think I thought it would be like 40 minutes long. And in the end, it was 33 or no, maybe I thought it was going to be 20. I think it was longer than I thought it was going to be. But uh, I still knew I didn't want to make a feature. I just knew okay. that it. I have kind of a short attention span in video and I knew I wasn't prepared to make a feature. And as I'm making it, I mean, there were opportunities to stretch it. And people later said, you know, why don't you take this 33 minute film and make it a feature? But I just 
thought it would have been compromised, and I like how it is, even though it's a really awkward length. It's terrible for, sh- for festivals. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's <laughs> yeah. the worst. Right, it's the advice that we give to everyone. It's like, don't make a film the length that you right. Exactly, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you wouldn't want to make a, like, so 40 minutes is a feature. You wouldn't want to make a 41-minute feature because no one's going to program it in their <laughs> festival. It probably needs right. to be, like, 75 <laughs> or more. Uh Likewise, the shorts shouldn't approach 40 minutes. They should be like 10 minutes. And in fact, I'm making a, uh, I'm just finishing up a doc right now that's only five minutes. And I'm thinking that'll be a great opportunity for me to get it into festivals because it's easy to program. You can always throw in. I mean, really, I've always thought like you should make a one minute short because like it would get (laughs) into every program. Right. But uh, luckily my film, I think because I made the film I wanted, I think it worked out well. It was a good film. Uh, and luckily it had it had an audience for at like food film festivals and Asian film festivals. And there were a few mainstream festivals that just wanted to do food. Like the Atlanta Film Festival told me that it was nice that they could get on the like like the the food section of the newspaper as well as the film <laughs> section. Oh, cool. Like I found I found a lot of f- festivals are kind of looking for that too. They can program it with a dinner or something. Um so it just seemed to find a home. So how many film festivals did you submit it to and how many did you get into? I'd have to look up the exact number, but I think it's... Oh, I have it. You oh, said yeah. it in your article. Oh. It may, it's probably even more since then, but I think it was around like 40 or something. You said you entered 42 festivals and you got into 24. Wow. Yeah. The 57, 57% acceptance That's really rate, good. And you, you paid $1,758 in submission fees. Right. And five thousand and twenty-six dollars to travel to nine of the twenty-four. Wow! Yeah, I did a lot so, of traveling early on. I, I mean, I was pretty excited at the beginning, so I went to like every single festival it got into. But uh, <laughs> after a while, I yeah. let it play. And then what? What happens is once you get in that first round of festivals, I mean, um, the the submission dates are in the fall, and then the first festivals mm-hmm. like Sundance are in January, and they kind of run through the spring. And then there's like a second season in the fall. There's not much in the summer. But once you get that run, I mean, even the fall festivals are calling you because you were in spring festivals. And then the next year, festivals in the spring are asking about you because you played last year. And so it just seems like this endless, like I'm still playing festivals now every once in a while, mm. even though it's three yeah. years later. Uh, so that number is probably around 30 now. So so I haven't read the article or anything. And I'm, I imagine most of the listeners probably haven't read the article. So I, I'm completely ignorant. Like, what was the biggest film festival that you got into? Probably the Atlanta Film Festival. Nice. Um, I think I was really hoping to get into South by Southwest to, like, come full circle. But I didn't. Uh, but the silver lining there was that Vimeo was very excited about the film being on their platform. They had just launched on demand, like, that year. I think oh, I was, cool pretty early in on it so at south by they did kind of a a reveal and they played a trailer before several films that included my film in it so Uh, i was like i'm kind of playing it (laughs) (laughs) did you enter sundance no i think i was too late for that like that's the first one of the season and i think their deadline might be my my film was finished around thanksgiving 2013 yeah i barely made the deadline for the march film festivals Mm -hmm. mm-hmm So before you set out to make the movie, like, did you think about where it was going to go, where it was going to live? It sounds like you probably had festivals in mind, but beyond that, were you thinking about, can I make my money back on this? Can I sell this? Any of that stuff? Or were you really just pure, just 
enthusiasm about this subject matter and you just wanted to get it done no matter what it took. Yeah, I was pretty gung-ho, and I decided early on that I thought this film could cost around $10,000 in travel, and that mm. that was a number I was comfortable paying for. Like, mm. that was a that was a number I was comfortable investing in my own career, that if, if at the end of it I have a film, great. Uh, that's something I can finally show people exactly what I'm capable of. Um, but luckily, pretty early on, my audience of followers, I, I do a lot of YouTube tutorials, they were pretty interested in the film and they let me know that they, you know, they wanted to help. And so I decided to kickstart the film just because it would be silly not to let people invest with me <laughs> right. in the film. Why spend all your own money when somebody else might help help get it made? And really, in the end, I think I learned from Kickstarter that it wasn't so much about the money, but it's about the excitement that it generates. I mean, I didn't yes. necessarily need the money. Hopefully, I could have gotten that money back uh, by selling it to the same people that were willing to invest in it. But by getting them in early, they're they're like the best evangel evangelists for the film. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, you build an audience already. So how much did you uh, bring in on Kickstarter? On Kickstarter, I asked for five thousand. So I knew that I needed about ten, but I thought let's definitely lowball that because the worst thing I could do is not reach my goal. Right. And luckily, that worked out well. I. I promoted the thing a lot before I launched it, so I had everyone kind of ready to go. I had about 2,000 Facebook fans for the film before oh, wow. Kickstarter launched. And then the day I launched it, it took eight hours for us to reach the $5,000 goal. Man, um, you're a pro, dude. Then, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I think Lucas said this in, a, in the episode we recorded with him. is like, if you make something that people want to see, then like that's the key. You picked a subject matter that people are so interested in that th there's like a built-in excitement around it. Yeah. And I think I also learned that if you make a film that you want to see, then mm -hmm. people will want to see it too. Like I I tried to not to spend too much time thinking about the audience and just thinking about would I like watching this? And mm. I think that helped. Yeah, I always, I always tell myself that, but you know, <laughs> and then it doesn't work. I mean, yeah. We made a lot of movies that we wanted to see, Griffin. Yeah, and no one came to see him. So don't. I mean, it came easy to you, but just know it's I not that it's easy for everyone. I think it's the best attitude, though, and I think despite yeah. it yeah, yeah. working out or not, you can't lose that. And I just think it's wonderful that that's what what you thought, and that's how you approached it, and it worked out so well. So that's that's just nice, right? You didn't go into it being like, you know what? People like Sriracha, and if I make a film about Sriracha, I can make so much money. Yeah, which would be the most depressing thing ever. <laughs> right, we'd be like, all right, podcast over, get off our show. Like, I know that, like, all the forces converged, like, the like fate helped me with this. Like, it just so happened that was the year that Sriracha probably hit its peak, and I mean, there were a lot of things that just worked out in my favor that I, I got lucky. Yeah. Well, thank you for admitting that. <laughs> I'm I'm really curious because I've you know I've had one film that went to festivals and I I did a my ratio was a lot worse than yours I I submitted to like seventy and I got into like twenty three twenty two something like that yeah. um I just want to go back to the thirty three minute thing like did you did you receive any kind of um like pushback on that was it were anybody like oh I love this movie but it's just a little bit too long like did you hear any of that kind of stuff Yeah I mean I think there was a couple times that that programmers told me it was too long. I think one thing I really learned that really hurt the film is the length of my credits. Uh, and this was uh. kind of a battle I was always having with the film was, am I making this for Kickstarter? 
these people who are so invested in it, or am I making this for festivals? Because I think I started to make it for festivals. And then mm. as I was making it and people got excited, I realized I think I'm making it for these people. So one of the promises I made in the Kickstarter campaign was I'm going to put all 1,500 backer names in the credits. And <laughs> and I didn't want to like save them at the end and just like flash them real quick. So I, I just... I kind of we kind of developed some credits that have the principal credits on the side and the Kickstarter credits throughout. So you're getting mm. it for the whole time. But I think the credits last like three or five minutes. Oh my god! Yeah, which is fun for the Kickstarter audience, but <laughs> right. festivals don't love that. And oh. I mean, I think that's <laughs> audiences don't love that. I I complained that after I saw Anomalisa. They went through all their Kickstarter backers, like every single person, yeah. like anyone who gave like a dollar got their name on there and it was took forever and I didn't care. I mean, I tried to make it interesting by the credits are very graphically interesting. I had very good designers put it together. And then I also put, there's a part in the film where you hear voicemails that people have left for Hoi Fong Foods, the people that make Sriracha mm. and they're really funny. Mm. So I filled the credits with more voicemails that you didn't get to hear. But uh, still, it would always create an awkward moment in a in a theater at a film film festival because either they would wait till the end of the credits to start the Q and A, uh, but sometimes like the audience wasn't really into the credits, like they weren't they, right. they were low enough that they couldn't really hear it, so they were all talking, and we just wait there for like four minutes to start the the Q and A. Yeah. So I wish I had if I had known that in advance, I probably could have done something much shorter yeah i i yeah. chopped my credits after the first film festival i screened at it was, they were like two minutes and then um i chopped them to 30 seconds um after yeah. the first screening because it was so awkward and mine was the only movie that had uh, credits <laughs> that were longer than like 30 seconds or something and right. so i was just like oh dear lord i have to i have to do this something about this and then after, after ever since then it's always short credits you know yeah um one other question. I, I think you might have said this already, but so you said you raised five thousand dollars, or you raised the amount you asked for in eight hours. But what was the total that you got from the Kickstarter? So in the end, after thirty days, it raised twenty one thousand dollars. Oh my god! Wow, which was great, um, and it enabled me to do some bigger things. Like I wanted to tell the full story of Sriracha, going all the way back to Thailand, where it was uh, invented in the fifties. But I didn't originally think that was going to be part of the project. But once I knew that I had $20,000 to spend, yeah, I, I booked a ticket to Thailand. Wow. Although that number is a little bit misleading because Kickstarter takes their own fee. And the perks. A lot of that mm -hmm. is the perks, yeah. So I think, what did I say, like maybe $12,000 is what actually right. went to the film. You spent $12,728 on production. And this article that is that I found, and everyone should go check this out it'll we'll put a link in the show notes on making movies is hard.com it was uh this is from 18 months after the release right so it's uh june or july of 2015 so there's still some history that we don't know on like numbers but as as of this date that you wrote this you had made seventy six thousand six hundred seventy seven dollars in revenue yes and it sounds great, like, oh, $76,000 uh, on a $12,000 production, but you paid for, uh, you said, merch and distribution. You spent $27,000 on that. You spent money to go to festivals and enter festivals. So that, you know, that took money away from your bottom line, but you still made money on the film, yeah. right? And I kind of, the way I, the way I designed that revenue chart, 
uh, just to show how much money the, the film has made, I actually start with the number before fees are taken out. But of course, mm-hmm. the fees are taken out in a lot of cases before I even see the money. So I never saw that much, but I wanted to kind of show that the film generated this much revenue and then each platform takes their cut. And in the end, I was left <laughs> right. with a profit of 36000 You generated almost $77,000, but expenses were 40000 Yeah, right. So you walked away with thirty six, which is it's still amazing on a thirty three minute film. Like you found a way to make money off of it. And my next question after Ulrich asks his is going to be like, wh- at what point did you decide that you could sell this? Because we've just put our movies up online for free. Yeah, like most most filmmakers do. But Ulrich, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, first. well, because you know you say it's thirty six thousand dollars, but I mean that twelve thousand wasn't your money that you put in the, in the first place. So it's basically that you get that twelve thousand <laughs> back too, right? You know, so that's yeah. that's pretty that's pretty amazing. You know, the the amount that you got, the return you got. People paid you to go make a movie. Yeah. yeah well, and lucky bastard. And the last part <laughs> I put in the article was, <laughs> I mean, it is like a, a true blessing to to even break even. So many films don't make money at all but one of the last things i put in the article was that if you really think about the eight months that i spent working on this if someone's you know if someone hired me to do this and paid me thirty six thousand dollars i would say that's not enough i mean that's like (laughs) it's not really it wasn't really worth my time but the lesson i've learned is that i mean i wanted this film to exist anyway and now it does and so many other things have come from this like like i got my job at bloomberg television because of this film I got picked mm-hmm. for this program called the American Film Showcase where I'm going to travel around the world for the State Department and teach documentary and show this film. It's like you never know what's, what can come from making a passion project. So even if you don't make money, there's other reasons to invest that in the first place. Right. Yeah. So that on that $36,000 that you made that year, you had to pay taxes on that too? Yeah. I mean, just like all my freelance income, I pay taxes yeah, on it. Yeah. So- it's pretty much your salary for the year was thirty six thousand dollars, you know, minus taxes. That's right. pretty yeah. good to to make a movie. I mean, I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've been talking about that. Like, wait, what's the minimum amount that you would need to make a yeah. movie? And Ulrich and I are like, we'll do it for free. <laughs> right? <laughs> if I could get paid forty we'll thousand dollars or thirty five thousand dollars a year to just make narrative films, I would do that. I would, t- I would yeah. you know, eat rice and beans, you know, yeah. that's fine. You couldn't do it in New York City, but yeah, in a lot of parts of the country, yeah. you could. Yeah. Ulrich, would your wife like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> but she'd probably she'd yeah, support me. She'd support me. <laughs> that's such an interesting point that you make, though, because I don't think we think about, like, your your time that went into it and that you would have been paid for other jobs had you not done right. that. So I mean, that's a really good point that just because you made money on it doesn't really mean that it's a sustainable way of of making movies, which is one thing that you pointed out in your article that I really loved. Like you said profitable, sure, but maybe it's not sustainable because you had to spend so much time being not only the filmmaker, but it sounds like you're also the promoter. Yeah. Well, and even the Kickstarter itself was just like a full-time job during those, like the months that that was going on. And even the months afterward, having to make the, the rewards and everything. So if we are not making movies for money, what are we making them for? To have the movie. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but I want, I want you to answer Timothy's question now about um, when did you realize that you actually, this was going to be something that can get distribution and not just a film festival movie? Yeah, because you're sitting on this 33-minute film. You started submitting that to film festivals. 
most filmmakers would never think like, oh, I could put this on Vimeo on demand and make money off of it. Like, so how did this whole thing happen? And like, it, it seems like you started with Vimeo on demand, but then you went to all these other platforms. So walk us through that journey. Yeah. Well, like I said, I was kind of always battling, like, is this a, fe- a film for festivals or is it a film for this Kickstarter audience? And by the end, when it, when I was ready, when it was done in uh, Thanksgiving, I decided it really needs to come out now. Like, I know some festivals have premiere restrictions, but I just thought these people on Kickstarter, I've given them the film. They're really excited about it. Uh, and there's so many people that they want to see it. It would be really, it almost felt selfish of me to, like, hold on to it and try to, like, take it to festivals without letting people see it. So I wanted to put it out in the world right away. And because I had asked people to pay for it on Kickstarter, I couldn't just give it away for free. Mm. So it, I mean, it was almost like the fair thing to do <laughs> is right. to find a paid platform for it. And Vimeo On Demand had just started, and it seems really fair. It was like they take 10%. And so I put it on there for the same price that I had on Kickstarter, which at first was $5. It's now $3 on most platforms. Yeah. Did you consider other platforms besides Vimeo? I did. Ended up I was Vimeo? very seriously looking at VHX at the time, which mm. I think is now owned by Vimeo. <laughs> mm, okay. But for a while, was for a long time, was independent. But when I tried it, it has lots of, has a lot more features. It was a lot more customizable, but it, the quality just didn't look as good. I literally uploaded my video to Vimeo and to VHX at a really high bit rate. And on VHX, it was a, just a little bit choppier playback, mm. and I was getting more artifacting. And I just thought, I really am happy with the look of my film. I want it to look nice. Mm-hmm. Right. What about like iTunes or Amazon? Well, what's lucky for me is that I was kind of short-sighted at first. I didn't even really think about other platforms. And as it turned out, that's a whole strategy. I think it's called windowing, <laughs> where oh. you make it available on one platform, and then later you make it available on another platform. And it turns out, when you do that, each time you launch on a new platform, that platform gets kind of a bump. It's like the premiere on iTunes, the premiere on Amazon. Uh. And people get, you know, they start talking about the film again because it's on, like, I, I get news articles written about the film when it landed on Amazon. So mm. I just kind of did it that way because I was lazy. I was like, I don't have time <laughs> to put it everywhere right now. Let me right. just focus on Vimeo because it makes the best profit margin. That's so interesting. So essentially, you extended the life of your film by windowing because um, it kept it in the culture longer. Whereas if you would have put them all on the, on every platform right away, it would have had like a big splash exactly. and then disappear. Well, and that's kind of what each platform does. Like Vimeo made $10,000 in the first month. It made, um, let's see, it made $20,000 in its first year. But then in its second year, it only made $3,000. And this year, it only made like $1.5,000. So mm. it definitely has this. I mean, it's nice that it's that people are still buying it. About one person every day buys it. Yeah. But it has a it has a tail, but it really levels off at some point. Yeah, fascinating. So you didn't use any kind of aggregator. You just submitted to each of these platforms on your own. Yeah, I started with Vimeo, and then I think I got a distributor who approached me and put it on Hulu for me. Uh, although mm. I realized I probably could have done that myself. So now I'm paying mm-hmm. a percentage to a distributor, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I did go to Amazon and iTunes myself. And the way you do that is through an aggregator. Um, like those platforms are not available to the public. 
Um, oh, okay. Which is funny because I think like Final Cut Pro has like an iTunes package export, but it's not like yeah. you can take that yourself and send it to iTunes. You have to go through an aggregator. So I went through a company called Premier Digital. And what's nice about them compared to a distributor is they don't charge you a percentage. They just take, you pay them a one-time ingestion fee. So I think I paid $500 once to get the film on iTunes and Amazon. It's like distributor. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily I made that that money back. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Awesome. Uh, I guess from there... Like, because you got to Netflix eventually, right? Is that is that true? I did not. Or not ever. What's funny though is everyone no. thinks it's on Netflix, and I'm guessing it's because it's on Amazon Prime, and people, either through their Apple TVs or whatever devices they're watching it, don't really know which platform they're seeing it on. I don't know. Mm. Everyone thinks it's on Netflix, but it's definitely not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw it on Prime just because I don't subscribe to Netflix streaming. Yeah. But I had to take a second and think, like, did I see it on Netflix or Amazon? Because the interface is very similar. Yeah. I mean, I would love yeah. it for, to be on Netflix, uh, but I, I don't even know how to get it on there. I don't think they have any interest in a film like mine, although I think it would do well on a platform like that. Oh, you know how you can do it is go to, like, Distriber. Yeah. You can pay them to bring it to Netflix for you. But I imagine right, Netflix right. still has to decide. Like, it's not just an open yes. marketplace, right? Oh, they yeah, do, no. but yeah. But from what I understand, um, the way Netflix works, it's not a pay-per-view or pay-per-hour right. model. They just give you a fee. Yeah. So you might only get, like, five grand for it. Yeah, I've heard the but fees aren't great. if you want more people to see it, yeah. you know, it's a good, good platform for people to watch it, at least. Well, and honestly, at this yeah. point in the life of my film, like... It would just be really cool to see it on Netflix. So, uh, and it's doing well on other platforms. So, if Netflix came to me and said, "Like, we'll give you five dollars," I'd probably say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I have a question, and this is unless Timothy has anything more directly. This is sort of like a, a different topic. But what, what do you ha- do? You have anything else, Timothy? I wanna I wanna talk about our our numbers and how we think that this could work. So, oh, okay, we we can switch topics. Sure. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask, like, going forward in the future, you have this five-minute documentary you're working on now. Like, is this something that you're just going to put on YouTube, or are you going to try to do the same thing and, and do a, a Vimeo paid release and then just do the same exact process you did for the Sriracha movie? Well, I I felt like it was hard enough to ask people to pay for a 30-minute film because it's not even a feature. It's, it's like people <laughs> right. are used to paying for features. They go to theaters to watch them. Uh and I found that $5 was appropriate for Kickstarter because people seem to overpay on Kickstarter. So for me, like for most people, $5 was less than everyone else was charging. By the time I went to the actual market, there were a few people who were saying, $5 for a short, that's crazy. I'm not going to pay that, uh, which is probably why I eventually pushed it down to 3 So I can't even imagine charging people for a five-minute dock. I don't know what I would charge, right. like 10 cents. <laughs> uh, so I'll just, I'll, I mean, I'm sure I won't make much on YouTube ads, but uh, I, this is more just to make, make a film that I wanted to see and also uh, to get it into festivals. Right. Yeah. I guess what my, my real question is, is like, at what point, like, when would you think that, oh, this is a, a sustainable thing to do again, or like what a reasonable thing to do again with another movie? Like, would it have to be 30 minutes or more? Or do you think like if you had a, a really cool 20 minute documentary, do you think that would warrant doing the same process? Or do you think it was a sort of like, this is like a special movie that at 30 minutes, it just worked that people wanted to pay five or $3 for it. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way it was a special movie. I mean, I'm sure if I could like bundle a short with something or if it's like part of like people are generally 
paying me for classes, online classes or something, and then they get to see the film. I, there may be a way to monetize it a different way. Or, you know, like Patreon, mm-hmm. the way that people are monetizing YouTube by having people right. essentially do a crowdsourced campaign every month. Right, right, right. So, Timothy, take it away. Okay, so just based off of this article alone, you made a profit of $36,000. And that that's pretty much your your fee to make the movie. But in our case, we're just looking to make our money back. We're probably right. going to work for free. We're, we're going to try to find investors to kick in money for as low as $50,000 movie, maybe as high as like a $200,000 movie, depending on what we can get. Your movie was super, super successful, and I still don't see a business model in here for a hundred thousand dollar movie. Let's just call it a hundred thousand yeah. dollar movie because that'll just make it easier. Like, how how do you think that we can even go about this? Do you like? Do you have any ideas for us? Like, this is kind of disheartening to see <laughs> that this movie so successful and, and only made thirty seven thousand dollars or thirty six thousand dollars, and I just don't see a way that we're going to be able to pull this off. Well, some of it is patience. Like, the film made that much in its first year and a half. I think you can double mm-hmm. it now. Because actually, 2014, the first full year it was out, it, um, let's see, it made somewhere, I mean, what did it make? After I think after fees and stuff, I think it generated for me about $23,000. Um, or no, it was about twenty uh, $22,000. And then... The next year, 2015, it made around 30000 So it actually made more in its second year. And that's because I put mm. it on Prime, which turned out to be a great platform for it. Mm. And then this year, it's already made more money than it made in its first year. It's it's lower. But the film has a long life to it. And I often think about maybe one film isn't enough to sustain yourself and live off of. Uh, right now, it's kind of just supplemental income that helps. But if I had a bunch of these, like if I really did this every year and I mean, I, I wouldn't get as lucky every year, but if I made a new one every year and they keep adding up, like I wonder your film, how much of the expenses you have, like cameras, might be usable for other things that will also make you money. And you can kind of, right. I mean, you could make a film and then you could make a behind the scenes that people, you know, you could sell classes or something. I mean. We could sell t-shirts and hats. I mean, I just said, I think you have to think about it as more than just the release, especially, I mean, or, or even just a release on one platform. Like you'll have a release on different platforms. You'll have different ways to monetize this film over time. Right. So just to be clear, you, so the movie's made another $25,000 on top of what we're looking at on these numbers here. Yeah. I plan on updating them soon. I think you could probably double most of these numbers, um, I oh, think wow. the, but of course, the expenses, the the fees that I'm paying are, are staying the same, but I'm not having to spend the production cost anymore. Yeah. Wow. So it's cl- probably closer to something around $65,000 maybe that you've made? Profit-wise, probably, yeah. I think revenue-wise, this film is probably closer to 150000 now. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that's that's actually a lot more um, encouraging because, I mean, that's still not $100,000, but... It's closer yeah. to that number. And it is three yeah. years. It takes a while. But I mean, I know it's right. going to keep making money um, for as long as people are willing to watch a 1080 HD movie about hot sauce. <laughs> Which, will, I, in my opinion, will be a very long time, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I don't think the 1080 f- platform is going to get overtaken by 4K for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I'm know? shooting on 4K I, now, but like every time I watched that 1080 movie in a movie theater, I thought it looked great. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, but even if you're shooting 4K, like people watching it on on you know Netflix or Amazon Prime, they're not you know yeah. they're not going to watch it in 4K. So it doesn't you know I think it doesn't really matter. I think the average consumer can barely tell which resolution they're watching. Maybe if they have a side by side comparison, they can pick out the higher res one. But they <laughs> right, most people right. are not that attuned to the details. No, they just want it to look good. Right. I guess the the main question that I, I think I have on all this is like, you know, it's like, how do you find that movie that people want to see? You know, and I think that's like the big mystery. Like, you know, you got lucky with what you you did and, uh, you know, that your interests lined up with something that everyone else is also interested in, you know, or a lot of people are. Um Cause like, I think no matter how you crunch the numbers, you look at the numbers, like these numbers wouldn't exist if the movie wasn't what it is. So I kind of just keep on thinking to myself, like, it doesn't really matter the numbers, like those numbers could be bigger or smaller, but if your movie isn't something that people connect to, then they won't be there at all, you know? (laughs) Well, and that's a, that's a good verb to use that they connect to it. Cause, and it's one reason I like documentary and I, I don't know what the answer is for narrative, but with documentary, there's generally a built-in community that's ready to be excited about it. Like almost any real story you're telling, there are people that are connected to that real story. So I guess you got to find what's that reason that some existing group of people are going to want to show up and, and make sure they know about it. Right. Well, for us, it would be like, all right, we're making a horror movie and there's an existing horror audience. But the problem is we're competing with the other hundred horror films that come out that year. With you, it's like there's one film about Sriracha. Yeah. You are not competing against anyone else. So that's where you have a huge advantage over us. Like how do we make our little horror movie stand out amongst all the rest? And maybe it's like we've been talking a lot about casting celebrities or no no names because then all of a sudden you stand out because you have – this person that was in this movie that everyone likes and you're the only horror film with that person in it. Yeah. I think in narrative, that's what it is. I think uh, to me, I mean, and maybe that's a little bit, you know, whatever, uh, shallow or superficial, but I do think that like, you know, whereas in documentary, it's like you find this subject, this topic, this thing that's really special that only you can make a movie about and it's the only one that exists. I think in narrative, it's like you have to have a really cool story, but then you also have to have the person that no one else has in your movie yeah. that's <laughs> perfect for that thing, you know, or the people, yeah. you know. Um, well, I give up. <laughs> done <laughs> you should be i'm excited this is exciting what i th- the yeah, other no, this thing is i wanted cool. to, the other thing i wanted to ask was like um like how important like you talked about windowing but it's like if you did the exact same thing you did on your next movie that's either 30 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour or whatever like do you think you could replicate this every time or do you think it was a lot of luck that played into these numbers working in this way in the order that you released on the various platforms i mean i may not be able to replicate it exactly but there are several lessons i've learned about like building the audience beforehand you know getting it's not enough just to release a film and then hope that people show up but hopefully you're activating people and energizing people along the way so that when premiere day comes they're super excited to go out and share it Uh, And then, yeah, I would definitely release on different platforms at one at a time. I would probably shorten the length of time. I think I had maybe six months between Vimeo and any other platform. I could shorten that to two months or something. 
Okay, let's let's talk about building an audience in your yeah exactly because like so ahead of the release of the film step one you do a kickstarter campaign and you get a bunch of people to chip in to help not only fund the movie but then their fans and then how did you get people to come to your facebook page was it was it step one the facebook yeah page? yeah actually oh, step, step one, one was, was the step one was page. getting people excited about the film wow. before even the kickstarter um because i wanted to make sure i succeeded at that too but I, I knew I wanted to make the film in March of 2013, and I pretty much spent a couple of weeks researching and deciding I was going to do this, and then went online and announced that I was making the film. I did this for a couple of reasons. One was to force myself to make this thing. Like, if I tell everyone about it, then I'm accountable for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys have uh-huh. a podcast about this. <laughs> and two was um, was making sure that no one else was doing this. Like, I wanted to kind of claim my right. territory that, like, this is my film. I've already said it. <laughs> Everyone stay away from Sriracha. Yeah, step, step off of this. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you know, just every – so even from the pretty much the day I decided to do this, I was getting people interested. And then while I was shooting, I was sharing behind the scenes. And I happened to generate some press while I was shooting just because I was talking to – um, local people in California and they started telling people and then newspapers started contacting. That's what was funny is like no one, no news writer should care about an Illinois native making a short documentary in California. But because it was about Sriracha, it was <laughs> something they wanted to write about. People love Sriracha. And so That's I kind of, so that the press helped get a lot of attention. And so I tried to take all that attention and turn it into a Facebook audience. I made sure that every, opportunity i had when people were talking about the film to say and be sure to go follow the film updates on facebook so that's what helped me build that 2000 person audience by the time i had a kickstarter the kickstarter only helped people were sharing the kickstarter those people were coming and backing but then also going on facebook so now i have a facebook audience and a kickstarter audience these are all people i can talk to and tell about the film as i'm editing but where did you announce the the facebook page just on facebook no, I, I made it uh, right at the beginning and was talking about it on YouTube. Pretty much every time I talked about the film, it's like instead of a website, I was telling people, go to this. So it was in newspaper articles. It was in on fa- on YouTube videos. It was on Facebook. What was your YouTube channel? Um, if you just Google Griffin Hammond, you'll find my tutorials. What were you doing? What kind of videos? Tutorials on what? Cameras and things like that? Yeah, I do like behind the scenes, like uh, just like filmmaking basics for uh, people who are getting Mm -hmm. into it. And how long had you been doing that and how many followers or subscribers did you have? Well, I was doing it for a channel called Indie Mogul, which had a lot of subscribers at the time, Uh, had maybe 600,000. And Mm, now it's all starting to make sense. (laughs) So you already had a 600,000 person audience. Yes. We don't have that. We have 500 people listening to us. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. But did you did you branch out to your own YouTube channel after that, or did you stay with Indie Mogul? Well, Indie Mogul uh, was funded by YouTube. It was a weird situation, and they stopped the funding in. Uh, uh, let's see, was it right around when the? I guess it was right before the film came out, actually. Um, so then I was I was going to my own channel. Okay, and then how many how many subscribers do you have on your own channel? Right now, I have fifty seven thousand. Okay, cool. But yeah, so it was the indie mogul audience you got to pull into your Facebook audience, basically. Yeah. And then 
help generate your 2000 followers. Right. Well, and what was cool about the appeal of Sriracha, though, is that it's that like in the end, when I had 1500 uh, Kickstarter backers, um, I think about, you know, not not very many of them, a few hundred of them were people that knew me from Indie Mogul. Uh, in the end, uh, it was a lot yeah. of like people were actually into this sauce. And I found that community, yeah. too. But yeah, it definitely helped, especially at the start. It definitely helped to have that big audience. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. So then after Kickstarter, you're making the movie, you get you keep getting written up before the movie's even done. And then after the movie's done, you can tap into your Kickstarter audience, your Facebook audience. And then did you do some promotion beyond that to let people know it's out on video on demand and this is where you can find it? I might have done some some Facebook ads, although I'm not sure that converted much. I didn't spend a lot of money there. Ooh. I think the one big thing I did was was contacting all the journalists who'd ever written about the film and making sure that yeah. they knew about the premiere day. Ah, smart, smart. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, in some ways, I know that if you're a reporter, you probably... It was fun to write about it while it was being made. I think it was kind of like, ooh, someone's making a Sriracha <laughs> right. decorator. Isn't that fun? Uh, and I know yeah. that they probably don't actually want to write the second article. Like, oh, now it's done. But part of me knows that if you're a journalist, you probably feel hypocritical if you're not writing that second article. Like, well, wait, why did I write the hype article if I'm not writing the yeah. <laughs> this right, article? Right, right. And so, I mean, I just went back to them and I was trying to be as helpful as possible. I don't send a press release. I hate that mm-hmm. to everyone. I would just send a very short email personalized to each reporter saying, hey, Julie, it was I really thank you for writing that article back in March. You had one of my favorite headlines. Um mm-hmm. You know, here's the, I just want you to know the film is coming out next week, and I have a, a link here to my press kit. So if you need anything, let me know. Um, and that helped. I, I yeah, got a lot nice. of publicity because of that. You didn't build like a new story around it. Like I was the first person to interview what's his name, David Tran. Was yeah, his, David Tran. Yeah, yeah. I was the first person to interview David Tran. Um, this is a huge story. Did you have to sell yourself like that? No, not too much. Because I mean, one, I I was trying to be humble enough. I think. That and maybe I didn't even recognize at the time that the story was that unique. I mean, I didn't, oh, okay. I didn't want to like tell people how great the film is before they see it. Hopefully, they like it. Uh, I was, <laughs> right, and luckily, right. Sriracha was just as a topic. People were excited enough about it. It was like, oh, yeah. that guy that he's making a Sriracha documentary. I want to go back to your social media campaign a little bit and just sort of get some details. So, was it only Facebook, or were you on Twitter as well? I was on. Several platforms. I think I was on Pinterest and um, oh, Pinterest too. And nice. uh, I think I even eventually made an Instagram, but I think it was primarily Twitter and Facebook. And Facebook was really where the growth was possible. And was it like Sriracha the movie or whatever? Was that your Facebook page, or did you have it like your production company, or how did you do it? Yeah, on Facebook? I made a separate one just for the film, which was probably smart because, like, not everyone who's into the film will be into everything I do uh, as a as a filmmaker. Right. Um, I mean, I recognized that pretty early on that this topic had its own audience. And so I better kind of build that mm-hmm. separate from my own personal properties. So, yeah, I made a Sriracha mm. the movie Facebook page and a Sriracha movie Twitter handle. And again, mm-hmm. that was also part of me just kind of like parking my idea out there. Like, I'm the one doing <laughs> this. No one else make this documentary. Were you deliberate at all in trying to mess with the Google algorithm so anyone searching Sriracha might see in the first page results something about a Sriracha movie? I mean, I don't know how to like game the system, but I am conscious of SEO, search engine optimization. And so I'm thinking about putting the word movie next to 
the the film's name, you know, in the title of the website or in the, you know, I think the Twitter handle is Sriracha Movie. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I think just as a personal branding exercise, I put my name next to the film most of the time. The, I think the name of it on Facebook is Sriracha M dash, the long dash, <laughs> Sriracha <laughs> dash, a documentary by Griffin Hammond. Like, mm. I wanted to make sure that the people that were fans of me recognized that this was my project. And also, mm. I think it did help that after people talked about the film, they maybe had some sense of who I was, too. I mean, if they heard my name again, they might know who I am. Right. It's a selling tool for you, too. Yeah. Was the goal to uh, come out of this and be like the next Morgan Spurlock? Or were you just like, I just want to make this movie <laughs> and then I'm going to just move on to the next thing? Yeah, I think I wasn't thinking long-term career. I think I was really thinking short-term, I want to go to festivals. Like, I was at festivals, Mm -hmm. watching people's films, thinking this would be really fun to be the guy showing something. And I got that experience for several months going to festivals. I mean, that that was all I needed out of this. And I got that, and I was very happy. And then just getting the feedback from fans was really really nice. But then to think that this would have a life beyond a few months, that... People would still be watching it. It would lead to other things. I had no idea. You didn't expect it. How about the the Bloomberg News job? Like, did was that something you went after, or they approached you? No, I had no idea. Like, that was completely unexpected. I got a call. Um, I guess this was about six months after the movie was made uh, in 2014, and I think the factory the that makes that makes sriracha at the time was having some legal issues, and mm-hmm. I think the lawsuit might have been dropped that week and so a bunch of reporters were calling me because for a while i was like the expert on sriracha that people would call (laughs) so i was used to this uh i was getting a bunch of calls from reporters that week i was doing interviews with npr and all these people and then i got an email from someone at business week uh bloomberg business week he said he was the editor of bloomberg business week and in my head i thought like editor okay you're like a copy editor you're like writing a story i didn't know that in print editor means you're like the ceo of the magazine (laughs) (laughs) yeah but he was like hey can i talk to you about sriracha and so i called him back just thinking like he wanted an interview like he needed a quote uh this was uh, josh tarangle who now works at vice news and he was starting bloomberg politics which i didn't really know about but he just called me up and said hey i really liked your documentary and uh, i was wondering if you might consider moving to new york and doing that kind of work for us i was like what kind of work like writing for a magazine he's like no making videos (laughs) (laughs) and i was like i I was just i had no idea that's what this call was going to be and a month later i was in new york interviewing wow and then and you're still with there and and do you do like short documentary projects for them is that what you work on yeah exactly i got to cover the u.s presidential election that was my job for two years I interviewed most oh, of the wow. presidential candidates. Um, they wanted that same style. Just I think they liked the film was pretty, but also I think with the film I proved that I'm someone who can shoot, edit, voiceover. I can. Mm-hmm. They could send me a loan, and I could come back with a, a project, a completed thing. Oh wow! Yeah. Damn. So so not only did it make money, but it got you a, like a huge step forward in your career. Basically, I mean, yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, that's probably a better a better return than the actual money is is landing a job because of it is, is amazing. And I think that's what, oh, yeah. what all of these kind of passion projects that we all have the opportunities to do, that's, I think, the real return on investment is if you can just use it as a vehicle to show people what you're capable of. Yeah. Well, dude, you are an inspiration and congratulations yeah. on 
all your success. I mean, it's well deserved. That I really love the documentary. I'm a huge fan of it. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, I think you did a good job, and I think it's yeah, it's awesome to see how you did it. And thanks so much for coming on and sharing that. Oh yeah, I was happy to. Yeah, all right, take us out. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. You can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode, including where to find Sriracha the movie, where to find more on Griffin Hammond and everything that he's doing. Oh, yeah. Griffin, um, you said you're starting a podcast. Can you tell us about that so people can go find that? It should oh, be you're by the time this yeah. yeah. By the time this premieres, your podcast should have started. Yeah. Yeah, it'll start January 4th. My podcast is called Hey Indie Filmmakers. It's me. I'm a documentary filmmaker with my friend Nick Bodmer, a tech expert. And we're talking about cameras and technology and behind the scenes of filmmaking. Wow. Sounds like right up my alley and all of our (laughs) listeners' alley. So uh, everyone go check it out. You can find it at hey.film. Hey dot film. Hey that's dot a great film. Wow, cool, <laughs> I didn't man. know that that was even like a web address you could have. <laughs> uh, cool. So you know, and if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at um, podcast at making movies hard making movies is hard dot com, and I'm sure we'll have Griffin's contact information and everything on there too. His Twitter, Facebook, email, what have you. Um, and if you find and, and Griffin, what what do you how do you want people to reach out to you? Like, what's your preferred mode of contact i am very accessible on twitter i'm at griffin but uh, you can also go to my website griffinhammond.com and you'll find more contact information for me sweet awesome and then you can also find us on twitter and facebook at mmih podcast and if you please and please what oh my god i can't even read (laughs) (laughs) and if you like the show tell a friend help us get the word out and leave us a review on itunes or stitcher or just tell somebody about the show and share it around and let people know that it exists because that's always helpful and uh thank you so much griffin for being on the show really appreciate it yeah, I loved doing it. Yeah, and thank you, Timothy, as always, for a wonderful yeah. episode. Thank you. It was fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. Sweet. That's it. That's our episode. Thanks for sticking around a little As longer. long as we're still here, I was wondering, um, I realized there's this thing I'm trying to do for the podcast where yeah. I'm going back to all the podcasts I've done interviews on, like yours, and asking them if they yeah. have any advice. And I was thinking I might have people record their advice and I would cut together a little package and I'd be able to feature like all of these podcasts that said, here's what you should do in a podcast. Uh, So I didn't know if you guys had any thoughts you wanted to share. (laughs) Gosh, no one's ever asked me for advice on a podcast. This is fun. Yeah. I I have my one big thing about podcasts and this is something that we've actually done pretty well is just being consistent. Like, you Mm, know, if you're going to say like, you know, you're doing it once a week, do it once a week. If you say you're going to come out on Monday, come out on Monday, you know, and just be, be consistent with your output. You know, that's what my best advice, I think. I should ask real quick. Are you still recording? Yeah. Uh, yes. cool. Yeah. So if you guys uh, could cut, yeah, that we'll send me, this great, to you yeah. when we're done. Um, gosh, I think that's really good advice though, Ulrich. Cause that's true. Like we, we ran into other filmmaking podcasts and they don't seem to be as consistent as we are we we release an episode every single monday and um we definitely hear from people like that they get excited about it and they're looking forward to it and i think it builds an anticipation that you can't get if you just release it whenever you want yeah it's the same with videos yeah exactly i mean you have a youtube channel you know how that goes so 
I think that's good. And I think the other thing is just don't be boring. Um, I feel like, I mean, that's easy to say, right? And not easy to do. But I feel like what happens in a lot of podcasts is um, people, because there's no time limit, it's not a TV show, right? It can be 20, it doesn't have to be 22 minutes or, you know, 54 minutes or whatever, you know, however long those TV shows are. So people tend to talk forever and get off topic. And the, the, um, podcasts that I that really bug me are the ones where they just kind of don't focus the conversation and um, so that's what I would say focus your conversation and try not to go off on so many tangents that you lose your audience like if you can make each episode about something specific I think that helps people like decide whether or not it's worth listening to and then also helps like give it some structure yeah yeah yeah, we in the beginning, we were very, I mean, we still are, but we we're always very like conscious of topic and having a structure to the, the episodes. And, you know, early on, we would ramble and get off topic and just start talking about whatever. And then we would just cut it from the episode. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, in the beginning, like our episodes ended up being like 46 minutes, 40 minutes or whatever. And then as we got kept on doing it, we our conversations got more focused and then we weren't cutting out as much. And so we just became an hour long podcast, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, we would record for an hour and then we'd cut it down to like 40 minutes (laughs) and now we can record for an hour and only cut out a few minutes because we we stay on top. Well, yeah, I think the conversation we just had was perfectly contained. Yeah, it's pretty focused. Yeah. So we do outlines like for me, an outline really helps because then I know what the talking points are and then I'm not like sitting there trying to come up with questions on the spot. Although, you you know, you leave it open to some improvisation, but um, to know kind of like what your agenda is and what you're going after and the kinds of answers that you're looking for and what's going to be um, helpful to the audience is important to know. But I think the way that Ulrich and I approached is like, we're trying to find the answers for ourselves. And I think that's something that's really interesting when you hear somebody else that's like seeking the answers, like you with your Sriracha documentary is a good example. It's like you wanted to know the story. And so we're on that journey with you. And so I, I, I like approaching the podcast in a similar way. And um, one of my favorite podcasts is What the Fuck with Mark Marion. Yeah. And I think he does a lot of that. He's he's searching for his own right. answers. There's so much personal shit that he brings to every interview. And I think that's what makes that fun is because he has his own agenda. It's not just an interview show and he's he's doing like the David Letterman thing where he's just asking like the standard questions. Like he's really trying to figure out his own life answers. Yeah. And so that's fun. And then, and so that's what I would encourage you to do is like, look for your own answers. Like, what are the things that you really want to figure out? Don't, and, and I know your, your YouTube channel is probably more about like teaching and stuff, but if you can tap into something that you're still trying to figure out, that, that might be like a key to um, getting the audience a little bit more interested yeah. in it. Yeah. I think pod, it seems like podcasting more than video has kind of an intimacy to it. It's a place where people right. can get to know you more. Yeah, yeah, somebody told told us that um, at a certain point, the podcast becomes less about what you're saying and more about just liking the people that you're hanging out with. And it just becomes like a hangout session yeah. for like an hour yeah. and you put them on and you like hang out with them. So it's like yeah. I think having like a, a strong point of view, like life point of view is probably an important thing. And it seems like all the popular podcasts do kind of like come at life with a, a very specific perspective yeah. and people just want to go and hang out in that perspective for an hour, two hours, yeah. whatever. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we get emotional sometimes on the podcast and, and some of those episodes <laughs> tend to be the most popular. Yeah. Um, I, I think so. Like I would say, no, don't be afraid to be emotional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Wow, we have a lot, a lot of advice. Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you guys for doing that. Cut that up however yeah, yeah. you want. You know, like yeah, yeah that'll be great. Yeah, we'll send you the individual splits of that, and you can cut it together. Perfect. I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Sweet. Cool, man. Dude. We'll get back well, to your so editing. Yeah, I will, and I'll send you this audio file shortly. Okay. Thanks cool. again. Thanks so much, man.